0: In this special episode of Naked Genetics, I'm Georgia Mills and I'll be examining the fallout from what's possibly the first incident of a genetically modified human being born. We follow on these results during the pregnancy by self- DNA. Zululu and Nala were born normal and healthy.
1: it just raises so many ethical questions my mind is absolutely blown with kind of questions for these researchers as to how they did this and how they got away with it
2: and my only hope is that this one act doesn't sort of set back what is potentially an amazing opportunity of a field
0: Before we start, you may have noticed I'm not the erstwhile host of this podcast, the wonderful Kat Arnie. Kat's moved on to Pastures New, so for this edition, you've got a brand new host, yours truly. But I'd like to say a massive thank you to Kat for all of her amazing work on the podcast and to wish her luck with her next adventures. Now, this episode is all about the alleged birth of two genetically modified humans. We still don't know for certain if it's true, but either way, the announcement has caused waves across the field of genetics. But what will the repercussions be for both the children and the future of genetic editing? What are the edits in question? And what could genetic editing in humans do in responsible hands? I'll be trying to find out the answers to these questions. And also, I'll be bringing you a roundup of the month's genetic headlines. But first, let's take a look at where this all started. After a leaked announcement on a video streaming service that genome edited children had been born, the scientist in question, He Zhang Kuei, was invited to speak about the work at the International Human Genome Editing Summit at the University of Hong Kong.
1: The reaction was palpable. There was a gasp, there was a silence, people were just shocked. It was
0: really incredibly powerful. That's Anna Middleton. She's the head of society and ethics research at the Wellcome Genome Campus in Cambridge, and she was there at the conference.
1: You know, the sort of elite of medicine, ethics and science were there in the room, and there was just a sense of absolute disbelief. How could he do this? Which research ethics committee approved this? Has he got ethics approval? How How is this funded? Where was this done? And it turns out there's questions about all of those things now. Mm, So that's the first time something like this has been done. As far as we know, and this has not been published in a peer-reviewed journal, so we're not entirely clear if it's true or not, but it seems credible that it may have actually happened. And so, of course, then the next questions are, well, how could this possibly happen? Because the implantation of edited embryos is illegal in many countries across the world. And it just raises so many ethical questions. My mind is absolutely blown with kind of questions for these researchers as to how they did this and how they got away with it.
0: And some of them got their chance. There were scientists and journalists from all around the world
1: clamouring to ask her about either the science or, like with Anna, the ethics. So I stood up and said, could you tell us about the consent process? Because the first point in any research like this is to understand if the research participants themselves actually understand what they're getting into. And it seems from the consent form, which has actually now disappeared from the internet, but we managed to have a look at it before it went, advertised the research project as a vaccination against HIV. Um, So it wasn't being touted as a project about editing of embryos. So sort of in the small print, the embryos were mentioned. So my first question would be, well, what did the participants understand they were taking part in? And were the risks fully explained to them? You know, what did they actually think was happening? And it wasn't clear that the scientists were able to really articulate that. The only consent form that's actually available that we've seen is in English. And the participants, as far as I understand, were Chinese. And the form is full of legal jargon and scientific jargon. And if you put it through a readability score, you need at least a degree to understand it in written English. So I think the first point is we could probably say with confidence that the participants didn't understand what they were taking part in.
0: Informed consent is a cornerstone of ethical research. It's what enables people to make an informed decision about whether they want to take part, knowing the risks and the obligations involved. We'll take a look at this one a bit more later, but this isn't the only ethical concern the community has
1: research into editing of embryos around the world isn't illegal but what the common kind of guidance is that is that we don't implant them to lead up to a pregnancy and the embryos are destroyed at the 14 day kind of mark so to actually implant them with the intention of leading to a pregnancy is highly unethical just really cuz we don't fully understand the downstream effects of this editing and whether there could be extreme harm induced particularly in these embryos you know you go to edit one gene and other genes are inadvertently edited at the same time or you go to edit one gene and it has other consequences that we don't fully understand and all the science in this has not been fully completed yet.
0: Right and I suppose doing something like this so dramatic you'd expect it to be for something life-saving in the embryo but this was something different.
1: Yeah absolutely so these embryos were completely normal to the point that they were edited, you know, it wasn't like he was trying to get rid of a really serious genetic disease that the embryos already had. They were completely normal. And then he introduced the edit. So that's highly unethical.
0: Anna Middleton there. So why are there these risks with the editing process? How does it actually work? The technique the scientists use is one you've probably heard of. It's called CRISPR.
2: CRISPR is sort of a revolution that's really occurring in biology
0: at the moment. This is Alistair Russell. He's at the Cancer Research UK Cambridge Institute and he uses CRISPR technologies to try and fight human disease. And he took me through how it works.
2: It can be boiled down to just a really simple two-part system where it's a pair of molecular scissors which allows you to go into a cell and cut DNA. And then it's got a GPS component where you can program the scissors and tell it where to cut DNA. So what this allows scientists to do really efficiently for the first time ever is to go inside cells, living cells, and start to cut and rewrite the DNA.
0: How did the system get uh, invented, I guess?
2: There's a bit of a long story about it, and it sort of started in the Mediterranean when scientists discovered strange artifacts in bacteria's DNA. And then about 20 years' worth of research sort of accumulated from the community led to an understanding that actually it's part of an immune system within bacteria, where they can sense incoming viruses or bacteriophage, which they've been having this evolutionary battle with since the dawn of time. And what they really discovered was it was a two-part system where the bacteria could essentially target the scissors to the invading virus DNA. In doing that, it stopped the viral infection. Now, the big jump came in 2012 when three groups all of a sudden saw the potential for this and they realized that actually what we've got here is a programmable way of cutting DNA. And so these groups all of a sudden very quickly took that out of that bacterial antiviral defense system and then put them into human and mouse cells. And they were able to rewrite the DNA in human cells and also create a novel mouse model of disease.
0: Right, so if you um, if you take these scissors and they're sort of the GPS function, you can actually put in the coordinates of the bit of DNA you want to snip?
2: Absolutely, and so you can use this in multiple ways. You can use this to cut the DNA and to turn off a gene so it won't make some sort of protein or the cell won't be able to do some sort of function. You can also put it in uh, with an, an extra bit of DNA and trick the cell into repairing it with the bit of DNA that you've put in there. And that DNA could be anything. It could be DNA from a jellyfish that allows the cell to glow green so you can help you to see it. Or it could be some sort of fix for some sort of mutation that was in that cell. Or perhaps you might want to go into a normal cell and then put in a mutation to see is this really the mutation that gives rise to a given disease.
0: Right, you make it sound like we've been given the keys to basically controlling everything here. So what what actually... Is possible then?
2: We're seeing different scientists using it in all sorts of varied and different ways. We've seen scientists recapitulate hundreds of thousands of years of evolution in crops in just a week. We've seen scientists uh, recreate spontaneous mutations that just happen to occur in cattle that give them twice as much muscle on demand. So instead of waiting for hundreds of thousands of years, you can sort of do that on demand. One thing that we focus on here is we look at patient cells and we sequence them so we read the DNA and we can see that patients have a selection of mutations but one of the problems we find is we're sort of looking for a needle in a haystack and so there might be 20 different mutations in any given individual but maybe only one of those is giving rise to their disease. So this allows us to actually take cells from those patients and then copy all of those mutations, so put them in one at a time, and then get real proper functional proof that this is the smoking gun. And that allows us to then go off and explore what we know about that gene and any drugs that will help those individuals. So it's there's real patient specific benefits in in being able to diagnose treatments.
0: And what about using CRISPR to actually go into living people and try and treat them from various things? Is that possible?
2: Absolutely. I mean, so this is early days in the field. The field is only really six years old. And so that's sort of like a heartbeat in in biomedical science, you know, a lot of these technologies. So a lot of the gene therapies took 25 years to get to the clinic. Um, So we're only just beginning to really understand the limitations of these technologies. So there's a lot of effort at the moment trying to understand the safety profiles of them. And because of that, the diseases that people are looking to apply this technology to are things like blood-borne diseases where you can take the blood out of the person, similar to what I was saying before, and you can do the editing, the rewriting of the genetic code in a petri dish. And then you can have a good look, you can read the whole of the genetic code, make sure that the changes that you made are specific and that they're safe and that they actually fix the disease before putting them back into patients. So there's About 13 clinical trials, I think, going on at the moment. There's a huge desire and motivation to put it into man, or the human, but we've just got to do this right. I mean, you know, we've made mistakes in the past and previous technologies, like gene therapy has had a bit of a checkered past, you know, some 20 years ago. And we've learnt a lot from those lessons, and we don't want to repeat those mistakes, and that's why it's a bit of a carefully, softly, softly approach.
0: A softly, softly approach, which very clearly hasn't been taken here. So how might the babies be impacted? We'll find out in a bit, but first it's time for a quick break to look at the news from the world of genetics from the month just gone. First up, researchers from Queen Mary University of London have found that methylation, which is a type of epigenetic marker in DNA, makes for a much more accurate cervical cancer test.
2: What we want to do is identify the people in whom cancer is very much on the cards, But we want to surgically remove those lesions before they become cancer. And that's the place where you have to be incredibly accurate.
0: Stockholm and Oslo University researchers have managed to extract DNA from some 6,000-year-old natural glue, which had been chewed up and discarded. And they used that to find out the appearance and most recent meals of the person who chewed it. They'd been chomping down on dark eels and hazelnuts. Researchers from the University of Cambridge found that a compound found in eye drops which targets an essential cancer gene could kill leukaemia cells, that's blood cancer, without harming the other cells in the body. That's from Nature Communications. And out in science earlier in the month, researchers have looked across the genome of 2,000 families and they've noticed that a mutation in a bit of DNA which doesn't code for a gene, it's called a promoter region, is actually linked with autism. And this may be concerning to some listeners. Duke University Medical Centre has found that exposure to weed changes the genetic profile of sperm. They don't know yet if these changes would be passed on to children or indeed what the effects would be. That's in the journal Epigenetics. And that is your Genetic News Roundup. the effects of sibling aggression can be more significant than we once thought. One
2: hundred electrodes to link my nervous system with a computer and
0: then onto the internet.
1: The Naked Neuroscience podcast explores the workings of the brain and the nervous system in our bodies and beyond. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words and neglect might hurt your brain. So you've got the little brain slice in the recording chamber From unravelling Alzheimer's disease to digging into dreams, join me, Katie Haler, each month as we make connections with scientists around the world and spark up conversations on the latest neuroscience news. You can listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com forward slash neuroscience or subscribe to Naked Neuroscience wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is Naked Genetics, I'm Georgia Mills, and this episode is all about the twins Lulu and Nana, allegedly the world's first genetically edited babies. Now, we just heard a bit about CRISPR and what it can do. So what was the change the scientists made in this case? Her and his team were interested in a specific gene called CCR5. CCR5 affects a certain receptor on white blood cells. A mutation in this gene means that the receptor doesn't appear. And when this happens, HIV finds it difficult to invade the white blood cells, which is effectively bestowing a kind of HIV resistance. So this research was about trying to create a baby who was immune to this virus. But what about the off-target effects people were concerned about? These are where the CRISPR scissors cut the wrong bit of DNA. Why does this happen and did it happen in this case? Back to CRUK's Alistair Russell.
2: Oh, that's, I mean, that's comes to down to the complexity of the human genome. I mean, the human genome is 3 billion letters long, you know, and so that's a lot of A's, T's, C's, and G's. And when you program this pair of scissors, you just use a stretch of 20 letters. And sometimes there's another stretch of 20 letters which look either identical or very similar somewhere else in the genome. And so when CRISPR has finished cutting... Its bit that you wanted it to cut, if you haven't designed it very well, it can actually go off and cut unintended bits which are highly similar. And so there's a huge effort in the field at the moment to be able to try and predict where, well, how precise and how much off target editing you will get from any given CRISPR design. In this particular case, unintended edits. And so it looks like these have been thoroughly looked for in Lulu and Nana and and none of them have been found. So none have yet to be, none have been identified at all, which is sort of a bit of saving
0: grace. Although it's unclear how thoroughly her has checked for these, he hasn't released enough data for everyone to confirm this. And on the informed consent, it does mention there might be this risk, but it's not very clear at all what this could actually mean for the child. It also says the project team is not responsible for the risk of off-target effects. But another concern that wasn't on the informed consent form at all is about the unintended effects of editing the CCR5 gene. Variations in this gene don't occur naturally in China. And perhaps there's a reason for that. For example, if you take sickle cell anemia, it's a terrible disease affecting blood cells that's caused by a mutation in just one gene. But this mutation also confers resistance to malaria. So if you were to edit this out of populations, you could end up killing a whole load of people. And with the CCR5 mutation, in mice at least, it's been linked with being important for protection against virus infection. In fact, mice with CCR5 knockout mutations infected with the flu were much more likely to die. So could this editing have conferred resistance against HIV, something you can protect yourself from using safe sex, at the expense of making someone much more susceptible to dying from flu? And will it definitely confer immunity to HIV? For one of the twins, only one copy of the gene was knocked out, so they will have a working receptor. And even in the other twin, many scientists have come forward and stated the work is so sloppy they don't think it will have worked anyway. And what will the psychological impact of all this be on the children? Back to Alistair.
2: One of the children has two faulty copies of the CCR5 gene, Okay. Now, that's not exactly the same as this Delta-32 variant that naturally occurs in the population. So the jury's still out as to whether these two faulty copies will have the same effect in protecting from HIV as the natural variant that we see in the Northern European population. Now, the other baby has only one faulty copy. And what we know from this biology of this protein is that that child won't be protected from HIV. And so it sort of begs the question about why, what the decision process was to implant that embryo and to create both Lulu and Nana. And so you end up with a bit of an, a strange family dynamic, really, where you have parents who are enrolled into a clinical trial to produce children who would be resistant to HIV, and they have one child that is potentially protected... And one that is definitely not um, and so you have one intended child and one unintended child and and what do you say to those children when they find out uh, so that's that's a really difficult set of conversations to have and I'm not sure how much of those th- thought how much thought was put into that family dynamic and and you know going forward and so that's that is really concerning.
0: And this concern was indeed raised at the meeting to her jankway. Their parents perceive well, them, how
1: their relatives perceive <laughs> them. They, they will
2: know, presumably at some point, that they have been edited. Uh, so
1: it's going to yeah, be very unique. I don't know how to answer this question from my eyes.
0: And there are other things that the scientist appears not to have considered.
2: Part and parcel with creating Lulu and Nana is um, there is regulation on them, right? So they are technically genetically modified organisms. They're, they're classified as GM in the UK and so they won't be able to travel to certain parts of the world. Uh, that, if they came to the UK they'd have to come in under certain import and regulatory licenses and be stored in a lab with a certificate and what have you. In other parts of the world they'll be able to go. They'll also have to be declared as they enter into the country as a GM organism and so that's extra unintended consequence that no one really seems to have thought about or really appreciated um, you know, at the start of the creation of these, these two, two young girls.
0: So taking all of this into account, I wanted to know what Alistair, who uses CRISPR to try and help people, thought about all this.
2: This has sort of just jumped out and just sprung out on the field and it's sort of come out of nowhere and there's a lot of questions about transparency. There's international moratoriums and a globally accepted red line about doing germline therapy. This is editing the sex cells, or every single cell in a body, and that will edit not only Lulu and Nana, but every child that they choose to have after that, Um, none of which have been consented, obviously. But uh, at the international meeting on human genome editing last year, the takeaway point from that was there is no justification for going germline at the moment. Um, However, the scientist has done that anyway, regardless of that international red line. And so we're now grappling with the situation where a red line was enforced, but it was uh, crossed over. And, you know, I mean, at this stage, uh, what we've really got to do is sort of get a bit more transparency and understanding about the process and really think about the girls uh, that have been born and, and what this means for them as they grow up and in the scientific community is sort of having a bit of a bit of a look at this and but also the Chinese authorities are stepping in there as well Um, yeah it's it's a big thing in the field at the moment And, and and my only hope is that this one act doesn't sort of set back what is potentially an amazing opportunity of a field and so CRISPR is touching all aspects of science and if we keep going with that safely, safely approach that has the potential to revolutionise disease the way that we feed ourselves, the way that we, you know, interact with our environment. And I would be... It would be a a terrible day if this put that in jeopardy and those potential benefits in jeopardy.
0: Alistair Russell there from CIUK. So where does this leave us? Back to Anna Middleton of the Welcome Genome Campus.
1: You know, you can have really strongly worded regulatory policy and ethics that we can all buy into in a principle but unless it's actually illegal then there's really no teeth to any of this so what was shocking to me is that you've got all the major um, academies of science and the Royal Society all standing up on stage saying we condemn this but actually there's nothing they can really do to stop it from happening and you can have sort of public shaming and all scientists saying that they don't support this, which and many people have come out saying they don't support it. But it doesn't actually change on the ground if, you, if you're not attached to a university and you don't, you're not going through a rec approval process and you've got a big funder behind you, which this guy seemed to have had. Then really, you can do what you like.
0: Do you think this is going to be the tip of the iceberg? You know, this CRISPR runaway train that we're just not going to be able to stop?
1: That's the big fear. And if you look at the rogue stem cell clinics that are popping up around the world you know in Mexico and Brazil and you know all sorts of places where the earth is promised to terminally ill people come and have a stem cell transplant and you know lots of money is exchanged and this is not leading to treatments or cures for people it feels as if there could be the same industry around editing of embryos but having said that I mean if we think about the process that you actually have to go through at the moment it's an IVF process and that's not a straightforward process with a high very high success rate so you need to have women who are willing to be injected every day have their eggs harvested you know you've got the low chance of a actual implanted embryo going to full pregnancy the success rate is going to be very very low so I don't know if there's going to be a mass market for this at the moment but when we get to the point where we can turn a skin cell into a sperm or an egg and all of this can happen in a dish then then we're off then, aren't we, in terms of editing embryos completely outside of the body. I think that's a good 20 years off, though.
0: And you mentioned earlier we're we're still waiting to find out people are editing embryos, but they're not implanting them uh, because we still don't know down-the-line effects. Why do you think the scientists jumped the gun here
1: before that? Um, I think the scientists jumped the gun because they were after the personal perceived rewards of being the first. I think it was to do with arrogance, and nothing more complicated than that, just to be the first in the world.
0: Her certainly seemed to show no remorse and indeed seemed shocked by the reaction from the community at large. And also for this specific case, I feel, it's a, I feel proud, actually. I feel proudest.
1: Any idea what's going to happen to the scientist? No, and from what I understand, he's gone into hiding and the family's gone into hiding. Who knows what will happen to this scientist? I understand he has um, a large amount of cash backing him. So, I don't know, maybe he'll just disappear into the commercial world and keep delivering his services. Who knows? depends on what the Chinese government decide to do. We don't know yet.
0: So this is a a really liminal moment then. So, I guess,
1: five, ten years from now, where do you think we'll be? I wonder whether this is going to really push forward two things one is tightening up the regulation and for those countries that don't have legal frameworks maybe they'll put in place legal frameworks but also I wonder whether the disease and patient community will push forward with their agenda on this and what was really exciting to see was the sickle cell community and the Duchenne muscular dystrophy community at the conference and You know they were saying look we want somatic gene therapies we want um, to understand how editing of embryos can help us and it may well be like with mitochondrial donation they'll they'll push for access to the services that they want and certainly in the UK that would require a change in the law but that may be something that we start to work towards I don't know but I think it will you know really catalyse conversations about this which is a really good thing.
0: So that's a positive we can hopefully take from this. At the time of release, He Jiankui is still missing. The Chinese government seemed to be considering whether he broke the law. And the community has pretty much unanimously come out and stated that this work was conducted unethically and without proper scientific rigour. But the CRISPR genie is out of the bottle. What's been done here isn't really particularly difficult for those who know how, so it's only a matter of time before someone else does it too. So will the legal framework change, and will it leave room for the genetic editing for people who really need it? It remains to be seen. And while we can hope Lula and Nana don't have a negatively impacted life because of this, we do know they won't be the last.
2: Let me, can I ask, before we get to David's second question, um, you said that um, there's been no other implantations, but just to be clear, are there any current pregnancies with embryos that have been genome edited as part of your clinical trials?
0: There is a, another one, but it did tend to monitor. It's what? There's another potential pregnancy. Thanks very much to Anna Middleton and Alistair Russell for their help with this episode. Naked Genetics will be back. So until next time, from me, Georgia Mills, goodbye. Botox Cosmetic, adobotulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.